You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Have you ever gazed in wonder at the Great Pyramid? Have you marveled at the golden face of Tutankhamun? Or admired the delicate features of Queen Nefertiti? If you have, you'll probably like the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore tales of this ancient culture. The History of Egypt is available wherever you get your podcasting fix. Come, let me introduce you to the world of ancient Egypt. Africa is a land with endless stories to tell. From epic battles, brilliant rulers, and the dramatic rise and fall of civilizations, join us on the History of Africa podcast to learn the too often unknown stories of the African continent. From the sands of Cairo to the plains of Zimbabwe, and from the mountains of Ethiopia to the forests of the Congo, find the History of Africa podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today we are continuing with the story of Fridjof Nansen and the Fromm Expedition. Two notes to start. First, as usual, there is a map of Nansen's route on our website, explorerspodcast.com. I recommend checking it out. And second, today's episode is going to cover Nansen and Yalmar Johansson's attempt at the North Pole, as well as their return journey. We will look at the fate of the Fromm, which was still stuck in the ice, in our next episode. That's it. Notes are done. Let's roll. Last time, we left Nansen as he and Johansson set off onto the polar ice with three sledges and 28 dogs. Their goal was to reach the North Pole. They had left the Fram at the location of 48 degrees and 4 minutes north. The pole was about 660 kilometers, or 410 miles away. Nansen figured it would take about 50 days to cover the distance. At that point, they would head back south, aiming for Franz Josef Land, an archipelago in the Arctic Ocean. From there, they would cross to Spitsbergen using the kayaks, which were packed on the sledges. There, they would find a sealing or whaling ship to get them home. So, after two aborted attempts to set out for the North Pole, Nansen Johansen, three sledges and 28 dogs, would finally get going on March 14, 1895. Initial progress was mixed due to the changing terrain. The sledges ran fine on the flat areas, but the ice was rarely flat. It was often littered with bumps and ridges. Ridges, called hummocks, were all too common. They could be a foot or two high, or ten times that. Smaller ones could be crossed with care, but larger ones forced the team to stop and find a way around, or over them. One time, in these early days, the team ran into a field of hummocks, 40 meters deep, or 130 feet. There was no way around the field, so the men had to carry the sledges through the field, sliding them along when possible, then lifting them over the outcroppings. It was slow and tedious work. Now, one thing that the men did do rather quickly was fall into a routine. From the outset, it was obvious that Johansson had a way with the dogs that Nansen did not possess. Nansen didn't have the patience needed when working with them, and was frustrated by any sort of erratic behavior, 
which if you have ever owned a dog is pretty much most of the time. This meant that Johansson would take care of the animals. At the end of the day, he would unharness them, feed them, and tie them up for the night. As Johansson did this, Nansen would set up the tent and then get the Primus stove going to make dinner. The Primus, by the way, would prove to be outstanding, and the men had no problem making food or melting water. This meant that dehydration was not an issue, unlike the Greenland expedition. The men often added a dried milk protein to the water for extra nutrition. In the mornings, Nansen would make breakfast while Johansson readied the dogs. Breakfast tended to be porridge and hot chocolate, while lunch was crisp bread, butter, cold pemmican, or some other canned food. Chocolate was eaten as a treat. For dinner, Nansen had three hot dishes that he typically made. The first was pemmican and potatoes. The second was fish gratin, which was fish meal, flour, and butter. And the third was pea, bean, or lentil soup. There was no coffee or tea. Nansen would keep a very careful track of the men's nutrition in his diary. It included 200 grams of protein, 220 grams of fat, and 450 grams of carbs. This amounted to about 4,700 calories per day, which was a solid intake. The men may get cold and tired, but they would not be hungry. Cold and tired sucks. Cold and tired and hungry is far, far worse. In the evenings, the men both kept diaries, although they did so erratically. Also, there was a single sleeping bag made of reindeer fur, which the men shared. Now, aside from the issues with the mixed terrain, the big thing bothering the two men was the cold. The temperature consistently hovered at negative 40 degrees, and while a person can handle that level of cold for a few hours or even a day or two, it soaks into your bones after you endure it day after day after day. Johansson said it best when he would write, quote, If only the cold would relent, it is miserable. The clothing and sleeping bag did not help matters. The sleeping bag, which was made of reindeer fur, was fine at first but it would slowly begin to retain moisture, which caused it to become heavy and freeze and stiffen up. The same was true for the men's clothing. In the day, the men would sweat, even in the cold, as they worked hard. Their wool clothing would absorb the moisture and then freeze up once they stopped. Another issue was the cuffs of the clothing. They would get wet from sweat and then freeze. I read that the cuffs became almost like sharp metal and scraped and cut the skin. The problem here was that their clothing was too tight. There was no room for air to circulate. One of the classic images of polar natives, such as the Inuit, is seeing them in their big coats. We often think of this as having a lot of layers or super thick insulation, but a major reason is to offer some room for the fabric to breathe, allowing air to circulate underneath. This helps prevent the sweating and freezing cycle. Anyhow, at night, the two men would get into their sleeping bag and cling together for warmth. The bag was half frozen, and so were their clothing. They'd have to lay there shivering and wait an hour or two before the clothing and bag be thawed so they could feel warm and fall asleep. Now, despite these issues, and the early setbacks moving across the ice, Nansen and Johansen would get better and more efficient each day as they learned how to tackle the problems in their path. Their daily run rose to around 9 miles, or 15 kilometers. That was a little better than what Nansen had predicted. This was greatly aided by a changing of the landscape. The often broken ice would transform into flat ice and rolling snowfields. It was perfect for the skis and sledges. Nansen would write, Quote, the ice seems to get better and smoother the further north we go, End quote. And with regard to routine, the dogs figured out their routines after a few days as well. They were bred for the cold weather and hard work, and they trotted along with the two skiers, following dutifully throughout the day. Nansen would go first, one of the teams, led by Kavike, following him. The other two sledges were tended to by Johansen. The dogs knew that at the end of the day, they would get fed, so they did their jobs knowing that rest and food was waiting for them. 
We should note that the dogs were not perfect. They would get into fights, and many of them seemed to take it as a challenge to escape their harnesses. Escapees often were ignored, as catching them took too much time and energy. Instead, Nansen and Johansen would just continue on, and the dog would eventually rejoin them. But in the end, the use of the dogs, along with skis, was revolutionary for travel on an ice pack. And so the dogs and men fell into routines, and the ice got better for travel. On March 22nd, eight days into the trek, they covered 11 miles, the best distance thus far. Also on that day, Nansen took his first astronomical observation. They had reached 85 degrees, nine minutes north. In doing so, they had covered about a sixth of the way to the pole. That was good progress, and the men were confident. Johansen wrote, quote, It's going gloriously. He could have added, other than the cold, which refused to let up. I think the toughest part about the cold for the men was that it made it hard to sleep. When someone doesn't sleep, they suffer fatigue and headaches and are more prone to making mistakes. Now, in addition to the intense cold, there were a few other signs of trouble. First, the team's sledge meter, which is basically an odometer connected to the sled, fell off and was lost. Thus, Nansen did not have a simple way of telling how far they had traveled on any given day. And second, around this time, a couple of the dogs started to show signs of ill health. The problem was their workload. Sled dogs can work long hours, pulling heavy loads, and in extremely cold conditions. The main thing they need is food, which they were getting, and frequent stops so they can rest. And this latter item was the main issue. Nansen and Johansen, once they got on their skis, did not want to stop. They got into a rhythm and a routine, and they wanted to take advantage of the smooth sailing. But sled dogs need to rest often, and if they don't get that, they start to break down. On March 24th, the first of the dogs would have to be put down after it collapsed. The dog would be butchered and fed to the other animals. So, the team made steady progress north, the day becoming a permanent fixture in their world. And then, in late March, the ice began to change. It went from smooth and open to choppy frozen seas. It became so uneven, the men removed their skis and plodded ahead on foot. On March 29th, Nansen took a reading to determine their location. The results were confusing and disheartening. They had advanced only 47 miles, or 75 kilometers, in the past week. At this rate, they wouldn't reach the pole until May 4th. Nansen felt they should have been closer. The issue that he was confronted with was that the Arctic ice pack didn't stay still. It moved with the winds and currents, and thus the team was facing the problem of the ice pack drifting south. They might travel 10 miles north in a day, but if the ice drifted 4 miles south, the net gain was only 6 miles. Nansen could only hope that the drift would favor him and Johansen. On March 31st, the team would have some welcome relief when the temperatures rose about 10 degrees and the winds faded. This made a huge difference. However, the warming temperatures meant the men would start experiencing new ice conditions, including open water. One time, a gap of water suddenly opened, separating Nansen and Johansen. Johansen would actually fall into the water, and while he got out quickly, he would spend hours trying to find a way across the gap. He would then have to thaw out in the sleeping bag. Now, I want to note that when ice was spotted, it's not as if it was deep water. They were still on the ice pack. The water they encountered could be as deep as a few inches, or several feet, or a couple of meters, or whatever. That means that even if the men did run into water, they could, if it wasn't too deep, cross it. The warming also contributed to dangerous and unpredictable terrain. Ice flows would push together and create big ridges. This made the use of skis difficult. This uneven terrain was the single biggest issue facing Nansen. It was essential to have a smooth surface so that the men and dogs could move quickly, but that is not what they were getting. On April 2nd, Nansen would again take a location reading. 
they still had 240 miles to go to the pole, and with the difficult ice pack conditions, their pace was slowing. Doubts about the expedition's success crept into his head. In his diary, Nansen would write, quote, beginning to have serious reservations over continuing northwards much longer, end quote. The next day, another dog would have to be put down. Johansson did the killing, but he hated it. He would cut the dog's throat in order to conserve ammunition. Both Johansson and Nansen were unnerved at having to kill the dogs. The team continued north, but things did not go well. The current was pushing them south, and the ice was not smooth. In fact, it got worse, becoming so convoluted, they advanced only a couple of miles on April 6th. Nansen wrote, quote, The ice is growing worse and worse. Yesterday, it brought me to the brink of despair. End quote. The following day, the conditions deteriorated even more. Nansen would scout ahead to see what lay in the distance. It was not good. He wrote, quote, I went ahead a good distance northwards on skis, but saw no reasonable way ahead. And from the top of the highest Sarek, no other kind of ice could be seen right up to the horizon. End quote. This means he was seeing nothing but broken and choppy ice, hummocks, crevasses, and sericks. The smooth, flat, wide-open ice pack he had predicted was in the north just didn't exist. Nansen knew it would be foolish to go on. They were still 230 miles, or 370 kilometers, from the pole. They could push north and gain a bit more ground, but with this terrain, there was no way they were going to make it to the North Pole and return alive. It was time to turn around. That day, Nansen and Johansen would have a farthest north celebration, feasting on hot stew, chocolate, and pudding. They had reached 86 degrees 13 minutes north. It was the biggest single advance to farthest north in 400 years. They set up two flags, a Norwegian one and another of the Sweden-Norway Union. Now they had to get back to civilization. For that, they had to make for the archipelago called Franz Josef Land, which had been visited by only a handful of people in the annals of history. Little was known about it. They didn't even know it was an archipelago. Many people thought Franz Josef Land was just one or two big islands. But Nansen did know that the southwestern edge of the region got you closest to Spitsbergen, which was their ultimate goal. Plus, near the same spot, there was a place called Ira Harbor. Earlier explorers had placed a supply depot at this location. They would likely find food and provisions, perhaps even a boat or other materials, to help them with the crossing to Spitsbergen. The return journey south went well in the first few days. The currents were with them, and the weather was warming, making things much more bearable. And the broken terrain turned into smoother and open stretches of ice. However, on April 13th, the men would commit a potentially dangerous gaffe. The weather was good and progress was steady, and in the desire to press onward, both Nansen and Johansen would let their watches stop. This was a potential disaster. The reason is that you need to have accurate time for reliable navigation. For calculating your latitude, which is your location going north-south, time isn't that important. But for longitude, your east-west location, it's critical. Nansen would have to estimate how long his watch had stopped and take calculations from there. But it was only an estimate. If he was wrong, he could end up going too far east or west of Franz Josef Land. If the men did that, there was nothing but ocean before them. And if that wasn't enough, by the middle of April, other issues arose. The temperature was rising by the day, and the sun was intense. This caused the ice conditions to get worse. There were more ridges, and the snow became warm and sticky, not great for sledges or the skis. Also, the currents shifted again, pushing the ice north. On April 18th, the expedition would press on for 16 hours, weaving its way through the twisted terrain of crevices, ridges, and open water. The dogs were visibly straining. However, the men would find signs of encouragement. 
a large piece of driftwood was discovered sticking out of the ice. It was the first object the men had seen in 18 months. They carved their initials into the piece of wood. Also, a week later, the men spotted fox tracks, another encouraging sign that they were nearing land. Now, I want to mention something that I have talked about in the past, and that was the relationship between Nansen and Johansen. The two were, without question, not friends. Nansen's condescending attitude grated on Johansen. His diary is littered with complaints about his boss. However, Johansen was not one to confront a superior, although they had their spats. Thankfully, it was often minor, passive-aggressive comments from both men. But on the whole, the two men tried to stick to their duties and keep out of the way of each other, but know that it was not always easy. So, towards the end of April, there were a few major issues facing Nansen. First, the dogs were wearing down. Two more had to be put down, and others were in bad shape. Plus, the dog food was running low. The problem was that every time a dog was put down, it forced the other dogs, who were getting weak themselves, to work even harder. This only sapped the strength of the dogs even more. With luck, the team would be able to find and kill some game. A polar bear or seal would do everyone wonders. The second issue was open water, which was becoming more frequent. This required extra effort as the team would have to find a way around such obstacles. But even that was getting difficult. On April 30th, the men would come to a wide stretch of it and find themselves trapped on an ice floe. Unable to move on, Nansen would elect to rest for a day. It was the first day the team had rested since they had started nearly seven weeks earlier. The men would repair their boots and clothing and just try and relax. The next day they would set out when the water closed up. By the way, that same day would bring a blizzard. Remarkably, the two men had not run into a snowstorm since they had started. And so the men went south even as the drift of the pack pushed them north. Also, food was running low, especially for the dogs. However, on the bright side, it was warming. On May 8th, the temperature was recorded at negative 8 Celsius or 18 degrees Fahrenheit. On May 13th, Nansen would decide to abandon one of the three sledges. A major reason was the condition of the dogs. Only 12 remained. Four tired dogs per sled just wasn't working. Plus, they were shedding supplies and lightening the load as they had moved south. The loads and the dogs would be redistributed amongst the two sledges. All of this would help the dogs and Johansen, who now only had to manage a single sledge. Food would remain the main issue, the men on the lookout for game. On May 17th, they spotted a narwhal. Nansen would snatch up a harpoon and race to the water's edge, but the narwhal never got within range and the opportunity would pass. As May waned, the men would see more positive signs. Polar bear tracks, birds, more whales, and even a seal were sighted. Life was all around them. Unfortunately, nothing got within range for the men to hunt. This would take a toll on the dogs, and by the end of the month, only eight remained. Amongst those put down was Nansen's precious Kvike. He was crushed by this. He adored the dog, which was his last link to home. Like the other dogs, she had worked her heart out, but could go no further. Nansen would say that the only solace in her death was that she would provide three days of food for the remaining dogs. Now, the other thing that the end of May brought was warming temperatures and changing conditions. The ice was becoming loose and slushy. The men stayed on their skis, but it was slow going. If they tried to walk, they simply sank one or two feet into the wet snow and melting ice. Traveling on the skis distributed the weight of the men and kept them from sinking. Also, there were fewer and fewer solid ice floes to travel on. Roland Hunford, in his book on Nansen, described the terrain as, quote, changing from clearly defined channels into a confusing mesh like the delta of a meandering river, end quote. As if to put an exclamation point on this statement, 
On May 31st, the men would again find themselves marooned on an ice floe. At this point, the men had to wait for the floe to drift into another larger section of ice, and that signaled it was time to prepare for the future, and that meant unpacking the kayaks. As a reminder, Nansen had brought two kayaks with him. These had been made special so they could be packed on the sledges. Now, as the men waited out the drift of the ice, it was time to refit and repair the two boats. The past two and a half months had been hard on the kayaks. They had endured brutal cold, endless jostling, and far too many crashes when the sledges tipped over. Thus, each kayak was relashed by hand, holes were repaired, and seams resealed. The big question that faced the men was the reliability of the boats. They had never been tested before, as there had been no open water available. The time on the ice floe allowed the men and dogs to rest, but as you can imagine, food was a major concern. Nansen would cut his and Johansen's rations for the first time. Johansen, by the way, would manage to shoot down a couple of seagulls during this time. It wasn't much, but it was better than nothing, and it was the first fresh food they'd had in months. On June 8th, the ice floe the men were on connected up to another floe, and the entire expedition could get moving. The team was now down to six dogs. The temperature would rise above freezing for the first time in months, which was welcome. However, it meant that travel conditions were terrible. The ice floes were crumbling under their feet. The team plowed through the mess, more dogs dropping as they went. By June 16th, only three were still alive. Nansen and Johansen, desperate for fresh food, ate one of the dogs that had collapsed. They said it made them feel like cannibals. Going forward, the men would work with the surviving dogs to pull the sledges. But to be honest, hope was waning. The conditions were bad. Open water was thwarting them consistently. The dogs were almost all dead. Fuel for the Primus stove was nearly gone, and food was running low. On June 21st, the ice conditions were so bad, the men could not use their skis. Nansen had to make a change. They needed to reach land soon. It was time to take to the kayaks. Now, the men didn't just toss the kayaks into the water and start rowing. Instead, they would take the two sledges and put them between the kayaks and lash them all together, creating a catamaran sort of thing. This meant that the men could sit in their kayaks, the sledges creating a platform between the two boats for transporting the supplies and dogs. The three remaining dogs, by the way, hopped right onto the catamaran without any hesitation, and the kayaks were soon rowing into open water. And the kayaks, well, they worked. Not great, but they worked. They leaked badly, and the men had to constantly bail them. But at least they worked. Now, the big question facing Nansen was, where to go? He didn't know exactly where he was. He thought he was on the eastern edge of Franz Josef Land, but he was not positive. In the end, Nansen could only push southwest, hoping to sight land. But they could not stay in the kayaks for long. They were taking on too much water. As the makeshift catamaran made its way toward a large, solid-looking ice floe, the team would get a much-needed gift. A large bearded seal, curious about the odd-looking object floating on the water, popped up its head. Johansen would grab a rifle and fire a single shot at the animal. He would later say it was, quote, the best and most useful shot in my whole life, end quote. The kayaks were dragged onto the ice floe, as was the carcass of the now-dead seal. Nansen said that he and Johansen did a celebratory dance around their prize. The shooting of the seal was a boon to Nansen, Johansen, and the surviving dogs. Everyone would gorge themselves on seal meat, and the seal blubber was used in the Primus stove to conserve paraffin, and leftover meat was cut up and used for traveling rations. Nansen would make pancakes using seal's blood and fry them in blubber. Johansen would write it was, quote, the most wonderful meal we had had during the whole trip, end quote. A second seal would be shot four days later. And on that same day, the team found a pool of fresh water. It was the first time they had drinking water without melting it. 
On this ice flow, Nansen and Johansen would relax and recuperate. They took their time to regain their strength and get ready for the continuing journey. Nansen needed the ice to come together to give him and Johansen a solid path to walk or ski on, or he needed the water to get clear of ice so they could use the kayaks. Neither was happening. The stay on this big ice flow would turn from days to weeks. The men called the place home sickness camp, as their idle time allowed them to think of better days, family, and friends. By the way, the temperatures were now steadily above freezing, and rain was common. On July 6th, the men would awake to find a polar bear sniffing around the camp. Nansen would shoot and kill the animal, plus two cubs. They now had more meat, plus the bearskins were used as an under-mattress for the sleeping bag. Also, another of the dogs would have to be put down. While there was now plenty of food, it had simply lost the will to keep going. There were only two remaining. Nansen and Johansen would finally depart on skis from homesickness camp on July 22nd. They left unused items, including the spare skis. The reindeer sleeping bag was abandoned as well, as it was worn and falling apart. Some blankets were sewn together for a new bag. The next day, Nansen would see a dark, hazy shape on the horizon. He would get out his telescope to investigate. It was land. Of the moment, he would write, quote, At last the marvel has come to pass. Land. Land and after we had almost given up our belief in it, end quote. Now, getting to that land was not so simple. Nansen estimated it was 5 to 10 miles away, but distances are deceiving on the ice, and it was actually closer to 20 miles. At this point, they needed to continue across the ice to the edge of the pack, where they could then try their kayaks again. So as the fog descended on the explorers, they had to carefully pick their way through the ice, which was deteriorating around them. They were literally jumping from one ice floe to the other. It was slow going, as they were often at the mercy of the winds and currents, but they were getting closer. It didn't help that Nansen's lumbago flared up. Lumbago is a chronic pain in the lower back. Nansen could move, slowly, but that was about it. Johansen would have to take over all the camp duties. By early August, food for the dogs ran out, and the men's rations were running low. Johansen would even shoot some seagulls to feed the dogs. And then, on August 4th, the men would sight open water. The edge of the ice pack was near. As the men were getting the kayaks ready for the open water, they would suddenly face disaster. A polar bear burst into the camp, completely surprising everyone. The bear made a rush for Johansen, who would shout out an alarm. Nansen went for his shotgun. The bear, Johansen wrote, quote, gave me a cuff on my right cheek with its giant forepaw, so that my head rang with the blow, and I was on my back with the bear over me, end quote. Thankfully, the bear was distracted by the barking dogs, or else Johansen would have been badly mauled or even killed. Instead, with the bear distracted, Nansen felled the animal with a single shot. Johansen was stunned, but was unhurt, save for a few cuts and bruises. It had been a close call, and the men were shaken by the encounter, but on the positive side, the killing of the bear would give the team plenty of food for the near future. In the early morning hours of August 5th, the men struck out from their camp, they went over the ice on foot, excited at what lay ahead, despite sinking into the slushy snow and ice, which was often ankle or even knee-deep. The next morning, the team would reach the edge of the Arctic ice pack. It had been a 600-plus mile trek, or nearly 1,000 kilometers, covering 146 days. It was the longest journey over the Arctic ice ever recorded at the time. The men were ecstatic. Nansen broke out some chocolate, which was running low, to celebrate. After that, they didn't dally. They wanted to move on while conditions were good. And thus, as before, they fixed the sledges to the kayaks, making the improvised catamaran. It was time to go. But there was one last dreaded task to be done. The two remaining dogs were no longer needed. 
Each of the men would shoot one of the dogs, the only time they used valuable cartridges for such a thing. Both Nansen and Johansen were close to tears when they put the kayaks into the water. Johansen would write, quote, You were faithful to the last, and if you come to another world, may you enjoy yourselves in the internal hunting grounds. End quote. The deed was done. The two men moved on, alone. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The kayaks on the open water were nothing short of amazing. A bamboo pole with a makeshift sail was raised on the catamaran, and the men glided effortlessly across the surf. Nansen would write, quote, For two years we have not seen such a stretch of water. End quote. And let's be clear, the Arctic ice pack was done. This water they were on was open sea. There were still plenty of ice flows and bergs around them, but the ice pack was behind and land was on the horizon. Now, what land was before them, they didn't know. Nansen hoped it was Franz Josef land, but he wondered if it was an undiscovered archipelago. But that didn't matter a lot at this point. They were free of the pack. Johansson would write, quote, It was an abrupt change from the struggle over the ice pack, and we were as happy as children at the thought of having finished with it. End quote. The land the two men neared would not be easily gained. The island ahead of them was covered in ice, and glacier walls lined the coast before them. It was going to be difficult to find a place to land. Again, I recommend looking at a map on our site to understand Nansen's progress. Anyhow, the two men would head west and then south. They would not land on any of the islands they saw due to the high glacial walls. When they needed to set up camp and eat and sleep, the kayaks would be pulled onto a stable ice flow. For several days, the kayaks would move forward. Where exactly they were going, Nansen wasn't sure. And then, after three days of heavy fog, the men would get a clear day. Nansen would climb to the top of a big ice flow and sight three more islands. It was not what he had expected. He was now coming to the realization that Franz Joseph Land was a collection of islands, an archipelago, not one big island. As a note, Nansen, despite his doubts, had indeed reached Franz Joseph Land. He was in the northeast corner of the region, and his suspicions that Franz Joseph Land was an archipelago were correct. It actually consists of nearly 200 islands. In normal times, The sighting of previously unknown islands would have elicited some excitement. Discovering stuff was cool. But now Nansen was focused on where he needed to go. And that was the western edge of these islands. Reach the western side of Franz Josef Land, and you can then take the kayaks to Spitsbergen. The latter, by the way, was a huge undertaking, as Spitsbergen was at least 200 miles away, or 320 kilometers. 
The other thing is that the two men needed to set out for Spitsbergen sooner than later if they wanted to reach it before the winter ice took hold of the region. Once it got too cold and the ice set in, the ships stopped coming to Spitsbergen until next spring. Thus, there was a sense of urgency to move on. By the way, one note for you. I mention Spitsbergen often in this story, and I want to point out that Spitsbergen is the biggest island of the Svalbard archipelago. Svalbard consists of nine main islands. Reach one of those islands, and it's relatively easy to get to Spitsbergen. Anyhow, I just wanted to make sure that was clear. So the men moved on, and all around them they saw signs of life. There were bear and fox tracks. Birds were everywhere. They could hear and see whales. They saw seals all the time. And walruses were often viewed basking in the sun on passing ice flows. This was encouraging, as it meant the men wouldn't starve. However, the latter animal, the walrus, would prove to be a threat to the travelers. The walrus is the most aggressive animal in these waters. A walrus, upon seeing the catamaran, was not adverse to chasing it, a way to enforce territorial borders. And it was not uncommon for the walrus to get close to the catamaran and even attack it. In just a couple of days, the men would shoot at two attacking walruses. One would flee and the other would be killed. So, by the middle of August, the dropping temperatures and shortening days would signal the end of summer. Also, the paraffin would run out, and the stove parts would be used to make some blubber lamps, which, as you can imagine, ran on blubber. These lamps were not as efficient as the Primus, but they did produce enough heat to cook food and give off some warmth. On August 15th, the men would reach two milestones. The first was they were able to pull the kayaks up onto actual land. It wasn't much, but it was significant to the men, as it was the first dry land they had stepped onto in nearly two years. Nansen was almost overjoyed at being on land again. In his diary, he described the landscape, including the flowers. Nansen and Johansson would raise a Norwegian flag to mark the occasion, plus they would have a special meal. The second item was actually the day after, when the men would round a piece of land that jutted out into the ocean and see nothing but water on the western horizon. They had reached the eastern edge of Franz Josef Land. Nansen would write this of the moment, quote, At last we rounded the promontory, and our hearts jumped for joy to only water to the west. End quote. And even more important, Nansen was pretty sure he knew where he was. He identified the headland as Cape Felder, which had been visited by earlier explorers. At this point, Nansen had two options. The first was to sail directly west towards Spitsbergen. This was a distance of about 300 miles, or 480 kilometers. Such a long ocean voyage would be immensely risky. The second option was to follow the western edge of Franz Josef Land, which goes southwest. The advantage to this is that it eventually gets you quite a bit closer to Spitsbergen. Plus, we can't forget that there was a supply depot at Ira Harbor at the southern edge of the islands. Getting to those supplies would make the crossing much more manageable. But let's be honest, there really wasn't much of a choice. Trying to cross the ocean now was a non-starter, and thus Nansen would head southwest down the line of islands of the archipelago. Progress would be erratic at best. Storms kept the men in one location for days, and during that time, ice packed in around the coast. Any dreams of getting home that year were now dashed. Still, the men held out hope that they could reach Ira Harbor before winter set in. The existing structures and supplies would make for excellent winter quarters. But it was not looking good. The ice was thickening and the winds were picking up. On August 21st, a polar bear tore through the tent wall, and the men had to shoot the animal. And there would be other attacks, these by walruses, who came after the men's kayaks. Luckily, the rifles would keep the big animals away. On August 26th, the team came to a spot that, the men judged, would serve as a good winter's quarter. Nansen would take it. The Arctic winter was coming, and preparing to survive it would require time. 
Johansson would say they were preparing for, quote, the third and worst polar night, end quote. They now needed to gather food and build a shelter. For food, there was plenty of game. Within days, they would kill six polar bears and a pair of walruses. The walruses were such easy pickings when caught on shore, Nansen felt like it was murder. However, they were so large they could not be moved and had to be butchered where they had been shot. Next was shelter. The men had limited tools, so they had to adapt to what they had for the task at hand. A pick was made from a walrus tusk, and a spade from a walrus shoulder blade, and a crowbar was fashioned from a broken sled runner. The winter quarters would be based on the stone huts of the Norwegian uplands. The men had to dig up and carry each stone, one by one, to the construction site. The stones were piled up to make a rectangular wall about a meter or three feet high. The men also dug down into the earth about three feet, meaning the height of the structure was around six feet or two meters. As for the roof, that was the tough part. They found one log on the island, which provided support for the roof, which was made of walrus hides. By the end of September, the hut was complete. It measured about 10 by 6 feet or 3 by 2 meters. The men could stand in the hut and there were no windows. It was called the hole by the men. The final thing that Nansen and Johansen did was to get more food for the winter and fuel. They would shoot five more bears and two more walruses. This would add a ton of meat for the winter ahead. Also, the blubber would provide fuel for the lamps that the men had put together from parts from the Primus stove. On October 15th, the sun sank beneath the horizon. The Arctic winter had arrived. Outside in the dark, the snow drifted up around the hut, only the roof exposed. It was like living underground. A bearskin served as a hatch so the men could exit the structure. Animal hide, moss, and snow were used to plug any drafts. Inside, the men set up a cooking corner with a blubber lamp and saucepan. A spot above was open for smoke to escape, a chimney constructed of snow and walrus bones. In the center of the hut was another blubber lamp, which was always lit. This provided heat and kept the middle of the hut from freezing. For sleeping, there was a raised platform with bearskin mats. The blanket sleeping bag the men had been using was woefully inadequate, but in time a new one was made from bearskin. There was plenty of food and fuel for the winter, and scurvy was not an issue, as the fresh meat provided traces of vitamin C, enough to keep the disease at bay. Nansen and his companion would thus fall into a routine that winter, boredom their greatest enemy. We can't forget, this is not seven or eight weeks, this is seven or eight months, and it would not be easy. They would cook and clean, write in their diaries, tend to the lamps, and ruminate over their fates. They would, often, think of home. Nansen's thoughts dwelled on Ava and his daughter. As long as the weather wasn't too bad, the men left the hut to walk and stretch their limbs, plus to get away from each other for a spell, and there were daily readings done with a thermometer and barometer. Nansen and Johansen seemed to have gotten along pretty well despite their cramped quarters. Perhaps it was that Nansen had little to be concerned about and didn't need to constantly be ordering Johansen about. The two men had always been very formal together. They addressed each other as Professor Nansen and Mr. Johansen. Now they fell into a first-name basis. The men also slept a lot. They were lethargic, like any other hibernating animal. One problem that did plague the men were the foxes. They would visit the hut regularly, often just chewing on the bear carcasses. However, they made a nuisance of themselves when they would steal things, which they loved to do. That winter, the foxes would make off with a sail, a ball of twine, a thermometer, a harpoon line, and more. The men would take some shots at the animals to frighten them off, but the results were mixed. The new year would bring thoughts of escaping their winter quarters. The men began to make new bearskin mittens and leggings, as well as the aforementioned sleeping bag. In late February, the birds would return, a sign the winter was coming to a close. 
But everything nearly ended when, on March 8th, Johansson would climb out of the hut and be greeted by a polar bear. Johansson would yell out an alarm and fling himself back into the hut. The bear, a big male, tried to follow him in. Johansson would scramble for his gun and take a shot at the bear. The great beast fled. Johansson would follow and shoot and kill the animal on the beach, or so he thought. He would turn and start to walk away when he heard another shot. The bear had gotten up, and it was Nansen who would finish him off. The bear was so large the men could not drag it to their camp. Instead, they spent 12 hours cutting up the animal where it lay. The next couple of months would give the men time to prepare for the next phase of their journey. With the weather warming, they began to make new clothing from the blankets and discarded sleeping bag, and the kayaks were repaired and waterproofed using blubber. New lashings were made from walrus and bear hide. Bears, by the way, were always a danger, but the pesky foxes were gone as they took to hounding the nesting birds on the cliffs as they were easier pickings. By May 12th, the men were ready to depart. The weather was warming and they had food and fuel. They knew they would need to hunt as they moved on. After a few delays, they would finally set out a week later. Before leaving, they would photograph the hut they had lived in for nearly eight months. Nansen's final act was to leave a note in the hut. It said, quote, We are going southwest along the land to cross over to Spitsbergen, end quote. There was still a lot of ice around the islands, so the men would begin by manhauling their sledges. It was hard work, but they were thrilled to be on the move again. However, it was not long before a storm would halt them for several days. By the way, the men had no tent. The old one had essentially disintegrated. Thus, they would park their sledges side by side, but with enough space in between for the two men to lay down. Skis and ski poles were placed across the sledges, then a sail on top of those, all of it making a simple tent. It was crude and not very warm, but it worked. When the men continued, they pressed southwest in the kayaks or on skis, but the weather often slowed them or forced them to take shelter. The slow progress gave Nansen time to contemplate a situation. He still had doubts about his location, and the men had to reach Spitsbergen this summer. He didn't know if they could survive another winter in the Arctic. In late May, a storm would pin them down for over a week. Food was running low. And on cue, on June 3rd, the men were able to shoot and kill a walrus. Walrus meat was not a favorite, but it was better than starving. On May 12th, the men would cross a wide strait and reach open water for the first time in more than a week. They would take to the kayaks. Later that day, they would moor their kayaks next to a high ridge of ice. They would climb to the top to get a good look around. It was then that disaster nearly struck. The catamaran broke from its moorings and started to drift off into the sea. The men rushed back to the shore, where Nansen took off some clothing, handed his watch to Johansen, and jumped in. The freezing water would nearly kill Nansen. He swam after the boat, but the cold shocked his system, and his limbs almost stopped working. But he knew he could not fail. Their lives were on those kayaks. They were dead if he couldn't reach them. Nansen would manage to get to the kayaks and grab a hold of them. He would then try to swim back, but he was too exhausted. Instead, he managed to get a foot onto a kayak and climb on board. Fighting the wind and current, the soaked and shivering Nansen struggled to row the catamaran back to shore. When he finally got close to the ice's edge, Johansen jumped into the other kayak and took over rowing. Nansen had almost died, but he had saved the two men. Johansen would get his companion out of his wet clothing and into a sleeping bag. Nansen would eventually fall to sleep and would wake up tired but unhurt from the ordeal. And thus, another disaster was averted. So, have we had enough near disasters? Well, of course not. Another one would hit the men a few days later, this in the form of an angry walrus. A walrus would take umbrage at Nansen's kayak and attack it. They would chase off the beast, but not before its tusks punctured the boat. 
and thus they would spend two days repairing the kayak and drying out gear. On June 17th, they were getting ready to depart, Nansen cooking a meal. He then suddenly walked up to a nearby ridge, saying, quote, I hear dogs barking. Johansen rushed over, lent his ear to the situation, but heard nothing. Perhaps it had been the wind or some other natural phenomenon. But Nansen was not sure. He decided to go investigate, on skis, taking with him the telescope and a gun, the latter in case he ran into a bear. It was risky for Nansen to go off alone, but they didn't want to leave the kayaks and the gear unattended. Nansen would proceed inland, doubt creeping into his mind, until he heard it again, the bark of dogs, and that was followed by something else, a human voice. Nansen said at that moment he, quote, jumped up on a hummock and shouted with all the power of my lungs, end quote. Then he heard the voice again, this a shout, and soon he saw a shape, a dog. It was quickly followed by another shape, a human. The man was calling to him in English. The man approaching Nansen was Frederick George Jackson. He would say about their meeting, quote, As I approached, I saw a man on ski with roughly made clothes and an old felt hat on his head, covered with oil and grease and black from head to foot. His hair was very long and dirty, end quote. Jackson had thought the man was a walrus hunter whose boat had been forced ashore by bad weather or the ice. But as he got closer, Jackson saw the man better and realized who it was. He would say, you are Nansen, are you not? And the reply would be, yes, I am Nansen. The two men greeted each other with Nansen, according to Jackson, saying, quote, by Jove, I am devilishly glad to see you, end quote. Nansen, by the way, spoke excellent English. Two episodes ago, I mentioned Frederick Jackson. He had applied to go on the Fram expedition, but he had been rejected due to his nationality. But here he was, face to face with Nansen. Jackson is probably best described as a Victorian gentleman adventurer. He was 35 years old and had the backing of an English newspaper magnet. He had left on his own expedition to Franz Josef Land in 1894, a year after Fromm. Jackson's team, seven other men, came out to greet Nansen. They gave him three cheers before setting off to go collect Johansen. It was here that Nansen learned that he had, indeed, reached Franz Josef Land. They were now at Cape Flora on Northbrook Island, not far from Nansen's destination of Ira Bay. His calculations and estimates had been pretty spot on, which was pretty impressive due to the snafu of letting his watch stop. Nansen would also find out that Jackson had departed for the area, hoping to perhaps run into Nansen. He had even brought a letter from back home, which he gave to Nansen. Nansen was downcast when the letter turned out to be from his brother, Alexander, and not from Ava. However, Alexander's letter would explain that Ava and his daughter were in good health, and Ava had not written because she couldn't bear to send a letter that might not reach him. News of his wife and daughter's good health lifted Nansen's spirits. And so, when Johansen returned, the two explorers would eat to their heart's content. There was bread, butter, milk, sugar, and coffee. And before the men cleaned up, a photo was taken of each of them. There was even a posed photo of Nansen on his skis, recreating the moment he and Jackson had met and shook hands. After that, it was hot baths, shaves, and haircuts. Roland Huntford, in his biography of Nansen, said, quote, out of the sooty troglodytes from the long winter in the half-buried hut, there emerged two fresh-scrubbed, barely recognizable Europeans, end quote. Now, Jackson's ship was not near the base, which consisted of about half a dozen huts, so it's not as if Nansen could depart Franz Josef Land, at least not yet. Also, in the aftermath of reaching safety, Nansen would suffer mysterious illness, likely a collapse after pushing himself, physically and mentally, for over two years. Otherwise, the men rested and recuperated, other than Nansen's illness, they were healthy. They had actually put on weight, and there was no signs of scurvy. 
Meanwhile, the two men could only wait for Jackson's ship to arrive and take them home. By the way, two side notes here. First, the previous winter, Jackson's team had been exploring to the north and had almost reached the location of Nansen's winter quarters. They had come within 40 miles, or 65 kilometers, of the Norwegians before the ice forced them to turn around. So very close. And second note, Nansen and Johansen would later suggest that it was as if fate had caused the walrus to attack and damage their kayak, forcing them ashore near Jackson's camp. Without that incident, the two men may have continued on and been forced to make the open sea crossing to Spitsbergen, and so the potentially disastrous walrus attack had, perhaps, saved their lives. Anyhow, side notes done. And here, with Nansen and Johansen safe and sound, is where we will wrap up things for today. Nansen and Johansen had returned, alive. In a lot of ways, it was a near miracle. There were so many times things could have gone wrong, and while they had not reached the North Pole, they had accomplished a tremendous amount. Nansen had proved that dogs and skis could be used effectively on polar ice packs. They had learned that there was no great continent in the north, just an unpredictable ice pack. They had learned that the Arctic Ocean was bigger and deeper than anyone had ever imagined. They had revealed to the world the vastness of the Fram Josef Land archipelago, mapping all sorts of islands. And finally, Nansen and Johansen had set a furthest north record that would stand for five years. Next time, we will get Nansen home, detail the fate of the Fram and her crew, and talk about the legacy of the Fram expedition. So there you go. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please take care. I will see you next time. The Explorers podcast is part of the Airwave Media Network. Go to airwavemedia.com to find other great shows, including Food with Mark Bittman and Fan Theory Queries. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.